Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Chris Bowden received his PhD in health from Victoria University of Wellington in 2017. His PhD focused on understanding young men's experience of losing a close male friend to suicide. Chris has been lecturing in the School of Education at Victoria University of Wellington since 2004. He teaches on undergraduate education courses and is also a postgraduate supervisor. Early in his career, he secured a national research project on resiliency and the role of early childhood education in supporting the development of family resilience. He has worked for Suicide Prevention New Zealand, the Mental Health Foundation of New Zealand as an information officer and community educator. He has been working in the area of suicide prevention and postvention for two decades. He provides community professional education locally and nationally and works closely with suicide prevention and postvention services, providing advice and guidance. He's authored many government reports on suicide prevention, presents conference papers and developed New Zealand's first nationwide psychoeducational program for adults bereaved by suicide called WAVES. Welcome, Chris. How are you? I'm good, Kathy. Thanks for having me. Well, it's very nice to have a different accent on our podcast series. So it's lovely to hear, you know, a New Zealand accent. You're based in Wellington, aren't you? I am the capital city, just up the road from Parliament at the university. So um, we have a lot of links with Parliament and policy, which is good for the university. But yeah, kia ora to all the listeners that are out there from New Zealand. And we're, you know, you are, I've spent a lot of time looking through your work and what you do. And I really enjoyed hearing you describe yourself as a pracademic, someone who's a practitioner, but also an academic. I mean, you do so much, but essentially you are a suicide educator and suicide education. And as a researcher, it's something people find quite difficult to absorb that someone could spend a whole career on suicide research and suicide education. But when you look at the fact that suicide is one of the leading causes of death for young people, certainly where we are in the world, it's absolutely essential work that you do, isn't it? Yeah, I started off in a background in psychology, but was mixing that with education. And what I realized was a big part of suicide prevention and postvention is education. And, you know, one of the ways that we can better prevent deaths and particularly suicides, you know, and, and in particular in young people who, you know, are high risk is through better educating those who work with those young people, whether it be school teachers, youth workers, counsellors, or even family and, and whanau, you know, in the community who need to learn a bit more about, you know, what to look for and how to support vulnerable young people. So for me, it was a no-brainer, really. You know, education's an absolutely essential part of suicide prevention and postvention. 
And I know from what I've heard as well that you're a suicide loss survivor, that you've been affected by those issues. I think I was struck by the fact that you'd said in in the sixth form when you were an older teenager, you lost three friends to suicide. Yeah, that was the start of the journey, I think. No support at the school was pretty much swept under the carpet. And out of a group of five, there was two of us left by the time we finished high school. And then losing two more friends in my second year at university, it really kind of cemented this as, as, as something personal, but also something that I really wanted to get into as a career in terms of working in the sector to better support young people and understand what young people go through when they lose someone close to them to suicide. That's right. That research that you've done, which we'll come on to in terms of how young men cope with that bereavement is absolutely fascinating and an under-researched area. So that's very exciting to hear you talk about. I think, can we just sort of go back to early intervention? I want this podcast to focus on postvention, but in terms of early intervention, I think it's useful for people in schools and parents listening to just to know that there are things that are really important that we can do both in family life, but also within school that are evidence-based. And I thought it'd be quite, you know, a good idea for us to run through a few of those very strongly evidenced ideas, if that's okay. In terms of what to look for or what to do? So in terms of, for example, some of the things I've written down, I've written down mental health literacy, I've written down safety plans, practicing help-seeking, Those are just things that I'm familiar with, but I'd love to hear from you in general about early intervention. If you were the head teacher of a secondary school, for example, what are the things that you would be very, very clear that you would have embedded within that curriculum or where should the focus be? I think from from my point of view, it goes back to social emotional learning and literacy, mental health literacy. And I think for a start, creating classrooms that are safe. And by safe, I mean safe for young people to talk about what's going on in their world, safe culturally, safe psychologically and physically. So, you know, having an oasis at school where young people feel that they can talk about things that are going on for them, I think that's the starting point. And then from there, I think, you know, having a curriculum that includes emotional literacy, helping young people learn how to label, identify, talk about their emotions, coping skills. Oh my God, you know, if I could implement coping skills programs in schools, you know, I think we would see a lot less reactive and impulsive behavior in young people. We would see a lot more positive outreach in terms of problem solving and help seeking. All of those things I think are really, really important and can be modeled by teachers in the classroom. One of the things we're doing in New Zealand is helping teachers be more intentional in the way that they teach about mental health. So not just having posters and things around the walls that kind of reflect mental health topics and and encourage young people to write and talk about issues to do with mental health and well-being, but actually taking time out of lessons to model good practice, things like mindfulness, you know, meditation, just reflection, critical reflection, reframing, all of these things. Teachers are are absolutely brilliant at being able to do this. And they don't even have to be the health teacher, you know, like they can be the English teacher, the art teacher, the science teacher, 
You know, I think suicide prevention is something everybody can do. And the other part, I think, is just, and I know teachers are so stretched when it comes to time and being time poor, but availability, you know, just being accessible to young people and, and being present, you know, like noticing kids when they come into class and noticing changes. And I think that's the really important thing. I think teachers have a really good opportunity to notice when things are not right with young people and to reach out to them and have a conversation with them to be able to kind of, you know, talk about what's maybe going on in their world and 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 refer them to support and information and help. Like I don't think teachers need to be counselors, but they need to help young people connect with good information. There's so much rubbish out there on the internet, you know. A question I'm often asked by secondary school teachers is is it advisable for a teacher, say a male teacher, to share with a, a young student that he himself used to have mental health struggles or uses particular coping mechanisms to manage their own anxiety. So often I'm asked about over-disclosure and the benefits of that kind of approach in order to build rapport with a young person, you know, an older teenager. And what are your sort of thoughts on that? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I think we've made huge progress in destigmatizing mental health and normalizing difference and diversity and responses and reactions to life events and struggles. And I think that's really important for young people to see that adults have been where they've been and made it through. And I think that's, you know, that's really promotes hope and more than just hope-based talk, hope-based action, you know, that that if that teacher shared not only did I go through a tough time when I was a young person or every generation has its struggles, I think talking about the actions that made a difference, you know, here's the things, here's the tools, here's the strategies, here's the people who helped me get through that. I think that's far more important than just saying, oh, look, you'll get through this and I've been through it and know where you're going. Absolutely. And that relationship between teacher and student, you know, how positive and strong that is, is really important, isn't it, for those mental health outcomes? Yeah, without the relationship, not much else can happen, really. I mean, it's the same in therapy and counselling. I think teachers do have a really good relationship with their young people and students. And, you know, I think they underestimate how much young people look up to them and how much of a role model they can actually be to young people. So, you know, teachers out there have a lot have a lot of power and, and positive influence. But then also you and I will know many situations that we can think of where parents were knowledgeable, the school was doing a fantastic job creating a transparent and supportive culture, children were seemed happy and everything seemed to be okay, and a child will take their own life and no one can understand or believe it. And I think that is a deep fear of parents and school staff that that would ever happen. So it is difficult to talk about, but we're all aware of situations where that particular child seemed to be happy, seemed to be coping. Teachers did everything they could to support them. Friends noticed, maybe mentioned it. And those situations are devastating, aren't they? Yeah, it's really difficult, I think, in those cases of suicide that appear to be kind of impulsive, reactionary. For a lot of those young people, they don't give off the warning signs. They don't have any of the indicators or have the history that we would normally associate with suicide. So it's very hard for people to 
spot those young people or even prevent their deaths. And I think that's part of a much larger debate about, you know, how preventable is suicide. I mean, I think you know, people vary in, in their views on that, but the majority of young people, I mean, again, going back to what you were talking about before, you know, helping people regulate their emotions and thoughts and develop more autonomy and control can help reduce the risk of those kinds of suicides. You know, if we can help young people slow down and, you know, we know about neurological development and everything in young people, but anything we can do to teach them to slow down, think about costs and benefits to their own behavior, to themselves and to others, to weigh up things and maybe to talk to others and get an alternative perspective, you know, all of those problem solving type skills, super important. But yeah, when those suicides come that come from out of the blue, it's devastating for the for the friends, it's devastating for the family, for the teachers around. There's a lot of soul searching and questions, you know, around, you know, why and could we have seen this and, you know, mm. should something have been done and, and it's it's really hard for people to make sense of it. And I think it's just about making sure we're all doing everything we can do that's evidence-based and hoping for the best. But I think I really like your point. It's about sort of focusing on the problem-solving. People don't think about problem-solving enough when it comes to early intervention or preventing mental health disorders in general. And I think teachers have these skills to promote problem-solving naturally. And also your sort of concentration on the idea of impulsivity what can we do to help young people think first? You know, just in that we know in particular boys can be very impulsive and that, you know, I'm a criminologist, so I'm very interested in that characteristic. But I think that if we can just get them to slow down, think it through, think through options, ideas, have that coping menu already mapped out ahead of time is enormously important, isn't it? Yeah, I I, I love that think, feel, do thing. I mean, that kind of triad. I mean, typically we think about something and then feel about it, you know, and go, well, is this the right kind of thing? You know, does this, do I feel this is the right course of action to take? And then we do. But for a lot of young people, it's feel something, do something, and then think about it afterwards. <laughs> and so anything we can do to kind of switch that around and get them to to think first and and also, I think, teach young people that they don't have to act on every thought or every feeling that they have. You know, in relation to suicidal ideation and, and thoughts and feelings, I think those can be really overwhelming for a lot of young people. So anything we can do to teach young people that they don't have to act, you know, it's okay to have thoughts and feelings, but, you know, it's not okay to act on those thoughts and feelings every time, you know. Yeah, that's a very strong point. Yeah. And dwelling on that and thinking about being okay with not feeling okay for a little period of time. And that goes back to that whole emotional literacy, doesn't it? Life is full of ups and downs. You've got your exams, you feel stressed, you, your girlfriend might break up. If you, there's all sorts of things can happen, but it's really learning to kind of navigate that wave rather than reacting to every single event as a catastrophe. And I think keeping the focus on solutions, you know, it's like, okay, so that stuff's happening, but what can I do? What have I done in the past that's helped? What can I do right now that helps? Who could I talk to that's been through this that might help? 
you know, it's that solutions focus rather than problem focus. I mean, we want to teach problem solving, but we also want kids to realize that it's okay to have the problem and it's okay to kind of dwell on the problem for a little bit and think about it. But then we need to act and we need to like, you know, start applying solutions to that problem and and just that simple act of doing something to address whatever distress or upset or problem that we're having can actually be really empowering for young people it can feel like they're making a difference and you know when you think about suicide and suicidality in particular hopelessness is a big part of of suicide you know feeling that the situation is never going to change or that things are never going to get better. So anything we can do to teach young people that situations are never hopeless, you know, we can always do something, and there are people out there who can help. And I think that's another another narrative that we really need to question is, you know, everybody knows the health system's broken, that, you know, it's hard for young people to get support and, you know, all of those things. But there is huge amounts of support out there. There's peer support, there's family support, there's professional support. There's, you know, if, if young people just let other people help, we can be a lot more hopeful and, and deal with these problems. Yeah, I think that people hearing and teenagers reading about the fact that nobody can get an appointment with a counsellor, you know, all those things, it doesn't help, does it? Most adults in the world would do anything they could to help a young person in distress. You know, there's multiple adults in lots of different settings who'd be there for them. But help seeking isn't easy, is it? You know, as you said, having a poster on a wall isn't going to cut it. And often a teenager who's feeling low and depressed isn't going to pick up the phone to that helpline. It's just not going to happen. But in your work, when you did you know, that work on adolescent young men, what did you find out about their coping in general before we talk about their, you know, their coping methodologies around a sort of a bereavement? What did you learn about young male coping? <laughs> I was surprised. <laughs> I think I'd hoped that young men had moved on from using a lot of the traditional forms of coping that men use. You know, I know about dominant hegemonic masculinity and and the way that men are supposed to do things. And I thought the generation coming through might be doing things different to past generations. But unfortunately, they tend to use the same strategies that most guys use, avoidance, denial, drugs and alcohol, risk-taking behavior, things that we typically associate with male coping. They did have some creativity, though, which I was really interested in. I think the way that they cope with stuff was activity-based and was often involved in either working on cars or building things or doing things together as a group. And, And that really intrigued me, you know, that guys, you know, we tend to have that kind of vision of men alone doing things alone, but in actual fact, young men do a lot of their coping with their peers. So yeah, I think, what did I learn about their coping? I, I think it was when things got really bad and, and were overwhelming to them, they, they often avoided situations or people that would create more stress for them. I think they liked finding information was a big part of their coping. Like They did a lot of research. They'd look for things online. They would read reviews of what other people said about different things that helped. 
And, you know, they would take a quite a, a logical kind of problem-solving approach to coping, you know, mm-hmm. like they would weigh up different options and, mm-hmm. and look at different things from different angles. I think in terms of help-seeking, and this was the really interesting thing, I think we need to reframe help-seeking. You know, for a lot of these young men in particular, help-seeking was still seen as vulnerability and weakness. You know, if you need to ask for help, then you're not coping. And they saw that as something negative. Whereas I think we need to reframe that as when you seek help for a problem or an issue that you're going through, that's a sign of courage. That's a sign of action. That means you're being proactive. It means you're one step closer to solving your problem and and achieving a goal. I think we need to reframe it as as action and autonomy, you know, them moving towards dealing with the problem. So, yeah, help-seeking's challenging for young people, and particularly young men, I think. Yeah, but I think that sort of metaphor of being a sort of an action man and taking ownership of an issue and reframing it in those courageous terms is incredibly useful. I can imagine even a primary school teacher could take that and use it in the classroom. I think that's quite interesting and a bit different. So in terms of the worst case scenario, that's what you and I are going to talk about now, you know, in a school setting, if a young person takes their life, I know nobody likes to think about this, but it's a really terrifying prospect for schools and school leaders and people in pastoral roles. And that's why I want to address it with you, because it's good to do the thinking ahead of time. Mm. One of the reasons why it's also incredibly scary, and you will know this well, is that the evidence suggests that that first 24-hour, 48-hour period is incredibly important in terms of the quality of support provided in order to prevent future suicides. So there's a sort of a period of vulnerability that we can talk about that I'm very interested in that and I want to raise awareness about because it's incredibly important schools are ready to hit the ground running to support young people in the right way at that time isn't it yeah here in New Zealand we have school guidelines for responding to suicidal behavior but also suicides and those guidelines are incredibly useful and and practical for schools and Part of what we've done in New Zealand is help schools prepare. So we've provided some some training for schools around those guidelines to familiarise themselves with those and to get all the processes and steps in place before anything happens. I mean, we call it just-in-time versus just-in-case learning, and, and often we don't want to learn something until something happens, and that's, you know, just in time, you know, we, we, we rush about to try and put some stuff in place to kind of minimize risk and deal with the issue. Whereas, you know, promoting things to schools and saying like, you know, just in case, it's not, I don't think it's a matter of just in case, it's a matter of when. I mean, every school is going to lose somebody oh, no. at some point. I mean, so being prepared is really important and having a team at the school and a leadership system in the school who know what to do and are confident in in implementing that plan and have got pre-prepared templates for communication with media, you know, what to post online, how to talk to the students, all of those things incredibly important. 
And you're right about the window of opportunity. And unfortunately, if things are not handled well within those first few days, the knock-on effect can be quite significant, you know, not just in terms of future risk and, and, and vulnerability for the students and community, but a lot of anger and a lot of damage to relationships with school staff and the school itself. So we have a traumatic incident management team in New Zealand who go out to assist schools when something like this happens. But the school management definitely have to be prepared and have a plan and a communication strategy and resources available and it's all there ready to go. It's like an emergency response, you know, like if you had an earthquake yeah. or a fire, it's the same sort of thing. It's a critical incident plan, yep. essentially, but that has to be practiced and thought about ahead of time rather than in the moment. And I think it struck me looking at the literature on this, that, you know, there, there are things schools can get badly wrong, like you've just mentioned, you know, how we tell pupils, how we communicate suicide methodologies, things that young people will be interested in, and the damage that can be done very early on can be significant, as you've mentioned. Yeah, I think it's a it's a real balance of providing truthful and honest information to people about what's going on, getting ahead of social media, which is often out there and people are discussing it before the school has even had a chance to address it. You know, young people are, yeah. are, are pretty fast at at talking about something that might be a suspected suicide but hasn't been confirmed. And, you know, that can be devastating to a family who maybe want to keep this private. And the school also has to, you know, balance the needs of the family and the wishes of the family for privacy with the needs of the students and the, and the school and wider community. Not talking about method, you know, that's a simple 101 rule, you know, not glamorizing, romanticizing the suicide all of those things, you know, addressing blame and scapegoating, you know, like making sure that when you communicate to students and community that no one person or thing is to blame for this death, you know, that suicide is a complex issue, to not focus on the method, to focus on, you know, what is the school doing to support students and families and what support is available, you know, like to get that message out pretty quickly that we're doing something. And, you know, here's what's going to be put in place to keep people safe and, you know, who you can communicate and talk to and to really promote help seeking because there will be young people who will be distressed about the death of this person. There will be young people who will be directly affected and indirectly affected and, and mapping who's vulnerable and providing that ongoing support. So, you know, there's a need for some short-term stuff in the school, but there's also a need for long-term monitoring. And we often see things pop up a year later around the anniversary of that student's death that re-triggers a whole bunch of things for students and, and staff. So that's, unfortunately, it's not a quick fix. No, but in the first 24 hours, it's about almost the communication methods, how you speak to people, the PR around it, so that we're not exasperating or you know amplifying any other damage. Staff will have their own grief and, and they've got other needs. But the language around suicide is incredibly important. Talk us through do's and don'ts because there are some, aren't there? Well, yeah, we, we don't talk about completed suicide anymore. We don't use that language. We don't even use the word attempted 
we talk about non-fatal and fatal suicidal behavior, or we talk about somebody taking their life or dying by suicide, there's connotations with language, and we need to be careful about that language. There are religious and, and cultural variances around how we talk about suicide, and that can be, you know, have a strong impact. For example, in our Pacifica communities in New Zealand, suicide is still often thought of as a sin, as, as something that a sin against God. And so we have to be really careful with our language to be inclusive, but also neutral and 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 non-traumatizing, I guess, in terms of you know how we talk about it. In terms of do's and don'ts in the communication, I think we have to be really careful about whether or not we actually confirm it as a suicide. In New Zealand, we have laws and a coroner's act which says that you cannot call something a suicide until it's been de- declared a suicide by the coroner. So legally, schools are not supposed to call it a suicide until it's been confirmed a suicide. So, you know, for them, it's often saying that there's been the death of a student, you know, or the sudden death of a student. And so that language becomes important. And and as often a signal, like people interpret that language, they know what it means. But, you know, until the circumstances are, are clarified, it's it's important not to, you know, not to make assumptions and not to communicate those. And those are very important things for staff to know. You know, maybe some staff don't know that. So these are, you know, important things to, you know, understand ahead of time. Yeah, I think one of the things that I often do when I'm going out and, and working with teachers in schools, you know, even before suicide or after suicide, is just helping them develop their ability to talk about suicide with their students. Like a lot of teachers don't know what to say. Like, you know, if there's been the death of a student in the school and they turn up to class the next day and they're like, what am I supposed to say to my class? You know, like, how do we go about talking about this? And so I spend quite a bit of time coaching them through how to have that careful and sensitive and caring conversation with, with young people and not to go so far into it that it's going to traumatise young people, but to be able to talk about it safely and carefully and sensitively. And, you know, to make it okay for young people to then talk about it carefully, safely and sensitively, because they, again, need that modelling. You know, if they need to talk to their friends about how they're feeling or what's happened, if they're watching what people are saying online, they need to be able to do that and talk about that safely as well. So just imagine you're the maths teacher, you know, and the, the students want to talk about a suicide that has recently occurred. Is it advisable to just get on with the maths class or is it advisable to have a little period of constructive discussion where we're, you're saying, listen, we're going to talk about that for 10 minutes? Literally, it's, teachers have time pressures. There's also a need for routine. There's also a need to get on with things for want of a better term. So how do they accommodate that as a classroom teacher? I think there's various levels that this happens on. And I think, you know, from the teacher's point of view, acknowledging the death, acknowledging that students will be struggling with that loss or affected by that loss, giving that five to 10 minutes at the start of a lesson to talk about anything that might be on top for students around that and reminding students where the support and help is, like, you know, that they can go to the school counsellor or they can talk to the school nurse or that this has been set up in the school. We often have designated safe spaces in schools for students to go to where there's a teacher or somebody there who can supervise and support them. 
So reminding students of those things. And yeah, I think giving some time, best practice shows that this is important, you know, to give a little bit of time at the beginning of a lesson to actually address this. But then moving on with normal routines is also equally important. And I think what happens is if students know that there are different opportunities in which they can express and talk and share what's going on for them, they don't find the need to have huge, long, emotional discussions in class. Like if this is going to be addressed at a school assembly, then principals and school leadership teams need to do that safely. If it's going to go out in a school newsletter or an email or on the school website, you know, that there's been the death of a student and here's what we're doing about it and the support that's available, that can take away a a lot of the need for people to talk about things in a more public forum. And then providing smaller spaces for students to come together to talk. So, you know, maybe it's the deans or the form teachers who can take a small group of students outside of class and talk about what's going on for them in those smaller forums, because there will always be a bunch of students who are not affected by these deaths, who want to get on with their learning, and who who don't want to be continuously reminded of what's happened. And so it's kind of balancing the needs of the few with the needs of the many, and providing those different forums for young people to talk. I think that's that's the most important thing. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, you know, you've done a lot of work on how young men cope when a friend dies. And I want to talk about that for a moment, because I listened to a different podcast that you did, and you were talking about the silences that you'd identified in the course of your work. But tell us how they, I mean, this is something you went through at school Mm. and at university. So I'm really curious as to what you learned about how they coped and also how that made you reflect on how you yourself coped at that young age. How they coped, they coped the best that they could. And it's interesting, you know, having done quite a lot of research on grief and grief and coping go hand in hand. The way that people cope affects the way that they grieve and men and women cope differently and grieve differently. They have different, you know, their coping styles and their grieving styles are are influenced by gender and socialization. So I think how the young men coped with the death of their friends very much was shaped by gender and masculine norms. How they tended to cope was they hung out together, they drank a lot, they talked a lot about their friend you know, they wanted to share stories. They wanted to talk about good times that they had with that person. It was really important for them to to share those memories with each other. And I think that was something they really struggled to do with adults, like the teachers and counsellors that, that they often went to for help weren't very good. I mean, <laughs> I wasn't surprised, but the focus on feelings doesn't really help these young men. Like asking someone how they feel all the time when they don't know how they feel or they're having a mixed range of emotions, thoughts, and behaviors, and they find it really hard to talk about what's going on inside them so that when when they were struggling and they went to people for help, I think they really struggled to find people who could understand what it was that they were going through. So they veered towards their peer group who knew that person. Yeah, and it's not to say that they didn't want professional help. A lot of these young men 
went to their GPs and went to psychologists and went to counsellors for help because they were trying to deal with really overwhelming thoughts and feelings. And, you know, I'm talking serious stuff here. Like some of them wanted to kill themselves. They wanted to join their friend. They thought that life was not worth living. You know, here was these friends of theirs who had everything going for them in their life, who took their lives or, you know, had the same struggles and the same issues that they had. And they were like, well, if he's done it, what the hell? Why should I stick around? You know, and and so a lot of them reached out for that professional help. But what they got was a lot of adults wanting to ask them about their feelings but those adults didn't give them any safe space to actually talk about those feelings or strategies for dealing with those feelings. And so um, what they were looking for was really practical stuff and really solutions-focused stuff. They were looking for advice. You know, what should I do when I'm feeling really overwhelmed? Or if I have these suicidal thoughts, what should I do? The other thing that strikes me is that when they're together in that group, as a friendship group, and they knew that person, they were probably sharing funny stories as you know as well. There was a little bit of humor, there was camaraderie, and maybe even a diffusion of the guilt, because there must be guilt when a friend takes their own life. Was did that come up? It did, and a lot of anger as well. So there was a lot of finger pointing and a lot of blaming and a lot of looking for answers. And I think they really struggled to see their friend's suicide as as a choice like for i think a lot of people think suicide is 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 an active choice that people make and for these young men they were like these young people had no choice like they were backed into a corner or they were pushed to the brink by other people and so there was a lot of anger and a lot of questioning of why and a lot of finger pointing and i think a lot of that sense making went on in a group in the groups but then interestingly they would withdraw from that those social situations and try to make sense of stuff by themselves like it was almost like they needed to shut out all the stuff that was happening on social media they had to shut out all the chatter from the adults and from other friends and just try and make sense of this by themselves and you know, they would reflect and think quite deeply on, you know, well, why and what does this mean for me? And those big existential questions of how am I going to carry on and what does this mean for my, how I carry on with the memory of my friend? I I was a little bit surprised because I thought things might have improved. You know, I lost my friends, you know, 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago. And I thought, young men would have been doing things differently, but they seemed, we had a lot in common. We did things almost the same. And that to me was the big surprise in, in, in the research was that things haven't shifted that much. I think the thing that really, really helped these young people get through it though was that shifting of narrative from telling stories about the death of their friend to the stories about who their friend was and is and how important they are and what gifts they had given them and how they were going to carry them forward in their life. And I think that to me, that strong narrative aspect of their coping, I was really encouraged by that, that, that they were using storytelling and developing an own, uh, their own narrative, internal narrative, I guess, as well as a communal narrative about what happened. 
And I think you describe it elsewhere as sort of a bearable account. They're trying to make sense of it, you know, in some way that makes the pain bearable. Yeah. And we see the same thing in bereaved adults. You know, um, we run programs for adults here in New Zealand and um, they, you know, helping the bereaved find a story that helps them put the suicide in context within their greater life. You know, like their life is going to continue. How much of their narrative do they want this to take up and, and help them understand that, you know, they can still move forward with their life, honouring the memory of their loved one. And I think for a lot of young people, that was the biggest struggle they had, was they thought that if they continued to move forward, they were dishonouring their friend's memory. They were letting go. If they let go of the pain, they were also letting go of the memory. And I'm like, no, you know, you can let go of the pain and still carry your friend with you forwards, but without the grief and without the sadness. What about in terms of, you know, when a suicide occurs in a school, it's part of its legacy, isn't it? And how does the school in the longer term, how should it appropriately memorialize, whatever the term is, that that child's life? What is what's best practice in terms of remembering? That's a tricky one. There's often a a call from the bereaved, whether it's the students at the school or maybe the family to want to create some sort of memorial for a young person and best advice around this is that the school should be school should be thinking about their policy for any kind of memorials if they have a policy for memorializing any person's death whether it's a student or a staff member then maybe the memorial for a suicide would sit within that similar policy and if it's normal practice well then maybe it would would be okay but generally speaking we don't encourage memorials, physical memorials or otherwise, because they become quite painful reminders for people that are left behind. And they're very impractical. Like, how many trees are you going to plant in the school grounds? You know, how many statues are you going to have? How many seats are you going to put out? How many cups are you going to have in a, in a trophy cabinet? You know, I think there are a lot of other ways that young people in the wider community can remember the lives of young people who have died by suicide like you know we we talk about getting them to think about maybe a scholarship or raising money for the charity the favorite charity of that person or maybe it's about sponsoring or raising money for books on mental health and well-being for the school you know there are lots of things that people can do other than put up a physical memorial or a physical reminder One thing that is clear in the research is the sort of the value of peer-led interventions and sort of how young people can really do so much to create a sort of a mentally healthy culture within a school. And we know that as counterintuitive as it is, talking about suicide in general, it's not going to sort of increase the chances of it, which people often find quite surprising. But would you be a fan of young people themselves in a school setting researching this topic? You know, it is one of the leading causes of death in the country. Isn't that important for us to think about, to research and to ask why, to audit how we seek help and within that school setting and to be much more proactive in that sense? That's a really good question. In a previous life, 
I used to work for SPINS, which was Suicide Prevention Information New Zealand. And so I used to get all the calls from school students up and down the country who were doing projects on suicide. And so they were quite amazed when they would send me an email going, I'm writing a school project or I'm writing an, an essay for English on suicide on you know, blah, 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 blah. Can you answer these questions for me? Well, part of my school project is I have to interview someone who does suicide prevention work. Can I interview you? So this is the perfect question for me because I used to do this for a job. I think the peer support stuff is really interesting. I think it can be really effective in it, and the evidence shows that you know peer support is an, plays an important role in suicide prevention. But, and this is a, there's a big but for this, those young people who become peer supporters who or become leaders within their peer community need good supervision. Like, I think the, the risk, we've seen a number of initiatives over the years, peer support programs in, in high schools in particular, where older students might be uh, looking after or looking out for vulnerable and at-risk younger students. And without proper training and without good supervision, they can be put at risk, significant risk themselves, because they are still young people. It's not okay for them to be listening to very sensitive and vulnerable disclosures from other young people who might be talking about all sorts of things from child abuse, sexual assault, you know, all sorts of things that might be going on in their life. That's a lot for a young person to carry and hold. We know that it's a lot just for counsellors and therapists to hold, let alone young people at school who are dealing with their own pressures and stresses. So peer support, yes, but with really good support around those peer supporters and good supervision and coaching. And I think from uh, exploring this as a topic, something that should we or shouldn't we be encouraging people to talk about this and write about this, I mean, from an education point of view, I strongly believe we should, but it's how we talk about it that's important, not whether we talk about it. I think we can have safe conversations about it. We can do research on this topic in a safe way as well. And I I think the same guidelines apply for school students who are wanting to do something about this. It's like climate change. It's like a lot of other issues that, that young people are having to deal with. They're very passionate about it and they just need a bit of guidance and they need a little bit of mentoring around um, how to do that safely. And once you point them in the right direction, you know, like you can point them in the right direction of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention Guidelines they read them and they go, yep, I can understand that now, that you know, using language is important, that we have to be safe, we don't want to incite contagion, we don't want to distress or trigger other people. So people can write about this, people can explore this topic. I think my only advice would be is don't just focus on the numbers. And I think understanding the causes, you know, from someone who's spent over 20 years doing research on suicide, there aren't any single causes for suicide, students are going to find it a pretty tough topic to find answers to. Maybe that's the, the answer itself, you know, that it's a complex issue and, and that there are multiple causes and, you know, everybody's different. And, you know, there are some common risk factors and some common issues that contribute to it, but we're still figuring out what's behind all of this. I think people get hung up on the numbers and the rates and who's most at risk. And, you know, that data is important, but I would be encouraging students to look at what are the programs and the initiatives 
and the things that are out there that are actually making a difference. You know, maybe for our diverse groups, our LGBTQI plus community, our indigenous communities, you know, what are the initiatives, the programs, the things that communities are implementing? You know, our media campaigns that have been, you know, we've got some fantastic media campaigns that have addressed mental health and suicide. You know, do some research on those. Look at the solutions. Look at the, you know, look at what's being implemented and how it's working and, and why it's working rather than focusing all on the problem and the issue. Yeah. And going back to your lovely word, hope, you know, where is the hope? There is hope. There's so many fantastic initiatives and ideas and energy, people who want to make things better and reduce suicide. So I think that it is about drawing out those positive things. What are you most excited about when you think about sort of suicide prevention in New Zealand? What are you what are your sort of top projects or bits of research that you're doing yourself that are exciting and do give you hope? I think from my point of view, I mean we're going through a period of sort of revision in terms of our national strategy in New Zealand. And we've got a relatively new strategy, which is yet to be put into action. And so to me, it's where the rubber hits the road. You know, we're, we're really focusing on how will this look in practice. And to me, the two big things that stand out are community-led initiatives. So moving out of the mental health space so like not all suicide prevention has to be about drugs alcohol and mental health those are big risk factors but there are things that we can do in a, at a community level so there's lots happening in community education and connectedness like a lot of community initiatives trying to build belonging and connectedness for people for vulnerable communities Another really interesting thing is the mental health apps. There's lots of research happening around the use of mental health apps and how some of those might be helping young people in particular uh, connect with counselling, but also understand and develop their own skills around uh, mental health and wellbeing. So I think that's a really interesting area. The one area that I hope is going to become or have more emphasis in the next few years is the postvention side of things. We have some serious lack of research and knowledge around the postvention sector. And, and while we've just introduced a, a national brief support service for people straight after they have lost someone to suicide, we're still yet to build some ongoing support. And for young people in particular, you know, I get a lot of a lot of questions and feedback from schools around could we adapt adult mm-hmm. programs that help yeah. adults deal with suicide and, and, and suicide grief? Could we have a similar program in schools? You know, what would that look like for young people, for teenagers? You know, could we have programs that take people on a journey through their grief and help them out the other side? And, and given that we know the significant risk between being bereaved by suicide and being at risk of suicide, I think that's a really important area to focus on. I also think it's incredibly fruitful to go back to that idea of narrative creation, because that is something teachers can really help with and understanding the importance of having that coherent narrative and developing it in some creative way is can be so beneficial for young people, can't it? I think the teachers that I've worked with over the years who have been there to support students after a suicide have helped students find that narrative in lots of different ways. 
through art, through music, through dance, through exercise. Every teacher in the school can help young people tell a story about their life. And I think those second narratives, the narratives about the struggle and the survival and the how I got through this, those are the stories that we need to hear more of and that young people need to hear more of. You know, we hear lots of stories about people who have lost someone to suicide and, and, have, and have struggled with that and, and how difficult and awful that has been for them. But what I think gives people the most hope are those stories that people share of, and this is what it's meant, you know, that I've changed the things I value in life. I spend more time with my family. I have grown as a result of this. I have learned to appreciate the little things in life. I have learned to let go of the little stuff, you know, and, and not worry so much about so those things. And I think every culture has tools for dealing with trauma and grief. And I, I really think we should be encouraging young people to share those stories of what tools, what skills, what cultural knowledge do they draw on that helps them get through. You know, those stories of hope are, are so powerful and needed. And providing them with a template to do that. I mean, you can think about parallels in other worlds like Alcoholics Anonymous. There are narratives for your testimony or there's in medical anthropology, there's so many volumes written about cancer narratives, the story of what happened to me. I mean, it's a well-established template that works. Yeah, I think you know the evidence for it is pretty strong and I, and and I've I've seen it personally as a you know like as you said a, as a pracademic someone who works with the bereaved on a daily basis I've seen the power that those narratives have for helping people shift from being stuck in their grief and stuck in a storyline that is just amplifying their pain to finding a new story that helps them move forward while still acknowledging what happened, you know? And I think, yeah, we've seen it work in a lot of other areas. I just wish there were more people out there promoting this as a as a way to help people heal. Absolutely. So Chris, you're a busy man. What are you working on at the minute? That's my last question for you. Tell us all the exciting projects you're getting involved in or supervising. Well, on the suicide front, we're actually working on a tool for mapping psychosocial hazards that contribute to suicide in the construction sector. Wow. And in particular, young apprentices who seem to be at higher risk of suicide. So we're wanting to understand a bit more about what they bring to the job site that creates risk and what the job itself adds to their risk. And I'm working on redevelopment of the WAVES program, which is our adult suicide bereavement program, with a version to a multiple pathway model for people with different kinds of grief. And there'll probably be a youth and a child version of that coming out sometime down the track. So that's in the development stage at the moment. Well, we did have one question from a parent, actually, when they knew that we were going to interview you, and they asked about sibling bereavement to suicide, if you knew anyone who was doing research on how siblings cope with the bereavement if their sibling has died by suicide. It's, they're a really invisible group. Um, there's very little research out there on the impact on siblings. I myself, you know, I've run 
groups and programs where we've had multiple siblings and family members go through the program and siblings experiences are quite different and the relationship to the deceased makes a difference to how the grief is experienced you know losing a child or losing a parent is different to losing a sibling so we, we there's very little research on siblings but I do know someone in New Zealand who's currently writing a book on siblings' experiences of suicide bereavement. Wow. And they are putting together stories. Each chapter is being written by a different sibling about their loss of their sibling. So watch the space because it's coming out for that reason. They wanted to write something wow. to help other siblings who are going through this experience, and she's edited. Well, that's extremely that exciting. Yeah. So please do let us know when I that will. comes out. Well. Chris, you're a very cheerful person for someone who works in what is a very difficult and challenging area. So thank you for all the work that you do and all the help and support that you have given people for such a very long time. Um, the world is grateful to you for your work. And uh, we hope to stay in touch with you and hear about any research projects you're doing or you know, learn more about what's going on in New Zealand. That's really exciting for us over here in the UK. So thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks, Kathy. And good luck to everybody out there who's working in this field as well. And to those with the lived experience who have gone through this or are supporting someone going through this, just, you know, be there, listen, provide that present support and help them find a new narrative. I think that's the, that's the three keys to this. Ka kite, everyone. Thank you so much, Chris. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.